This podcast is brought to you by Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation who raise money for military charities. They do this through organising fundraising events revolving around the themes of rugby, alcohol, good company, networking and good food. They were formed in 2009 in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whitaker, who was sadly killed on operations serving with the Parachute Regiment in Afghanistan in 2008. Since their formation, Rugby for Heroes have raised nearly £120,000 for military charities. Their support that they provide people, that they provide charities, is incredible. An innumerable amount of people they've helped over the years, both directly and indirectly. Myself, I've been a beneficiary of Rugby for Heroes in the past, and I am very, very grateful for the support they provided me and the support they continue to provide many others. Male... Female, in fact, whatever your gender, whatever your service, military, ex-military, rugby for heroes exist to support you. They have got a number of events lined up for 2022. Uh, just find them on social media at rugby number four heroes or go to their website rugbyforheroes.org. Easy peasy. I strongly recommend you come along to one of the events. I've been to every single event that they've done since I came to know about them, and I plan to go to every single event in the future. The supper clubs are great. Each supper club features at least one guest speaker of notoriety, either in the military community or the, the society at large. Um, they're well worth going to. All of the events are worth going to. Rugbyforheroes.org. This podcast was also brought to you by the Aardvark Group. The Aardvark Group was founded in 1982 and has established itself as a major player in its field, renowned for its exceptional technology and innovative propositions that have supported countless defence ministries, the humanitarian and NGO sectors, and commercial operators in theatres of war and post-conflict environments around the world. Aardvark is foremost a humanitarian organisation, working to help rid the world of the explosive remnants of war. Their technologies are uniquely developed by operators for operators, which ensures that every product, system or platform conforms to the essential criteria of stability, survivability and reliability. Aardvark know that to have a truly lasting positive impact, their technologies must be cost effective. So they've commissioned a number of projects with their research partners to develop technical innovations with the core aim of delivering affordable solutions that can be deployed directly into communities to reduce the incidence of accidents and deaths due to explosive threats. Aardvark are headquartered in the UK and they've got offices in the USA and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And the Aardvark Group develops technically innovative solutions which support a number of critical sectors. Their portfolio of solutions is extensive with all elements fully interoperable and capable of being integrated into your existing operational platforms. For example, the Aardvark AMCS, the Aardvark Gen 2, the Aardvark Ranger, pretty cool bit of kit, Aardvark Counter Drone Systems, their drone systems too, for example, the Aardvark eBird, and the Enduro, and a bunch of other technologies and services and products they provide. They also have an online shop on their website where you can pick up kit and equipment for the operator. Whatever kind of operating you are doing in whatever environment, I should say in whatever industry, in post-conflict zones, in theatres of war and hostile environments, Aardvark has a shop where you, may be, where you will be able to pick up kit that will assist you on your merry way in those places. 
Go to aardvark.group, check out the shop, check out all the products and services and the technologies. It's very cool stuff. Very cutting-edge technologies they're deploying. It's really interesting to look at and see and understand. And when you buy something from the shop for you, use the discount code HHOUR and you will get a discount at checkout. The website is aardvark.group and you can find them on social media, the Aardvark Group. Easy peasy. Also bringing you the podcast today are Combat Cigars. Combat Cigars, I'm very proud to be a part of this company, a relatively new company. They are the only British military veteran-owned cigar company in the UK. We source our cigars from a family farm in Colombia, which has been rolling cigars for an excess of 200 years. These cigars are so good that I know several people we're binning off their love of Cubans to smoke combat cigars. I am not joking. I'm not making that up. You can find it out for yourself. I'm sure you'll find it online. They, that is happening, okay? We stumbled across this family who made cigars when we were looking for a, a unique independent supplier who fit the right people to work with, who we wanted to partner with. And my God, the product is incredible. Combat cigars are incredible as, as a result. We are three former service people. Obviously, you know my background to the podcast. The other two guys behind it as well. They are former Power Edge guys. And the cigars we sell are all themed around the military, obviously. We've got four cigars. We've got the Center of Mass. We've got the Victory. We've got the Last Post. And we've got the Oath of Allegiance. And each cigar features a medal ribbon on it relating to the name of the cigar. You need to go on, on the website and take a look quite timely at the moment we've got our victory cigar which is very very popular it's robusta sized it's a beautiful flavor that features the medal ribbon of the south atlantic medal i.e the falkliners medal it is a 40th anniversary this year get on to combat cigars put in the discount code cc ooh, cc2022 yeah, that's correct cc2022 and you will get money off your next order do it by veteran owned when you're thinking about getting cigars when you're thinking about cigars in general for any reason think combat cigars go to combatcigars.co.uk Adam Benfield, we're on. Uh, an associate of uh, Mazzoni. Doll- oh, I said Mazzoni. Uh, no, no. Maz- Mazzoni. Mazzoni. <laughs> Sounds like the name of the pizza. <laughs> Mazzoni oh, Dalton. Oh, God. Uh, an associate Mazzoni Dalton, which itself, that must come with its stresses. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a fun character. He's a, he's a handful, but uh, yeah, good guy. Good guy. Um, we were just talking about, uh, well... I would like to come out to Bosnia at some point. We were just talking about in the in the patron interview. I mean, yeah, okay, come yeah, on yeah. that at some point. And because uh, my my like my knowledge of Bosnia in terms of as an operational tour, uh-huh. but, uh, what was going on at a military level is pretty is pretty poor. Oh, I never served. I was before uh-huh. my time. But before we come on to that, you work in the vicinity of some mental boffins, mad technology in Harwell. Yes, um, Harwell Uni. Harwell uh, Tech. It's it's well, it's it's not a university. It's um, well, based there is is uh, it's the centre of science and technology, uh, and based there is a, a large company called Appleton Rutherford, 
uh, laboratories. What are they called? Uh, Rutherford, Rutherford Appleton Laboratories, RAL uh, for short. Uh, and they, they have uh, all kinds of weird and wonderful stuff. If you look at it on Google Earth, you'll see there's a big hydron collider spiral thing there that fires atoms at each other. Oh, have they got one there? They've got one I didn't there. know that. I thought the only one was in Europe, that no, big tunnel they've got, thing. they've got one there. They've got, they've got, a, if you have a look at, uh, on, on Google, if it's got, uh, they've got a neon cannon, it fires neons at something, oh whatever they, God. whatever they do there. Um, it, it's the, the science and technology there. And that, that spreads out neon, to the wider community Neon as well. cannons are what they used in the 80s to colour all the clothing, wasn't it? They used <laughs> neon cannon, neon <laughs> cannon factories. I don't know, yeah. <laughs> There's that got coloured dyed like clothing, I don't I know. I went to Harwell once. It was, it was about four... Five years ago, for for work, I'd I'd forgotten I'd even gone there until you mentioned uh, it. Right, and I went. I can't remember which part, but I <clears throat> you you wouldn't recognise it now. It's continuously developing. The places the places are a continuous building site, and there's there's new labs and you know units that people can hire out to do experimental stuff all the time. It's just continuously developing. What's their focus? What like what area of tech is their focus? Uh, well, uh, there's the space technology there. Um, there's Element 6, which is uh, sort of they do a lot of battery technology there as well. There's a lot of um, sort of medical science goes on there as well. Um, the, the list goes on and on and on. If you, you look on Google, if you'll see all the places there. So space technology, they've got um, they've built um, a, a new place there, part of uh, RAL, which tests satellites. So it's a huge building. Uh, inside, they can vacuum it. It's like a hangar, but they can vacuum it. That way they can put a satellite inside <coughs> it and test how it would perform if it were out in space in the vacuum of, of space. so the, the Why do they do that here when we don't launch any satellites from well, here? Well, I, th I think they're doing component parts as opposed to oh. the entire satellite. Oh, they don't right. put the entire satellite in there. They'll put component parts in there, test them, see how they're going to perform. Um, uh, and that's, again, that's that's continuously being developed. Um, there's uh, VMIC, which is being built there, which is a vaccination um, uh, immunisation manufacturers. Is, is there and it was being built actually um, last year uh, and it was being part, uh, part of the COVID package um, I think it's moved on from that now and it's become not just part of the COVID package and, and, and vaccination production and, and experimentation and, and development but a much wider scope of things now so it's going to be used for all kinds of uh, things going on yeah it's quite quite interesting to drive around there when you work in there you were saying oh, again on that patron only interview yeah. about you like to read when you read and you like to read a lot of science and all that. Yeah, what yeah. In, what interests you most? What are you quite well read on that kind of stuff? Um, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I say well read quite often. I have to read through it twice. I'm pr pretty sure you're the same. You read through something, and you go, I haven't quite got that. Let's read that again, and you'll go through it. So yeah, you understand the the, in, the interaction of of where, where atoms you know hit each other. They split into the different new ones. You know, you red, you blue, and you black, and you white, and and all those all the, the way they react. Um, you know, your forces, your, your nuclear strong, your nuclear weak, your magnetic forces, and all these kinds of things. So I like, I like that. It interests <laughs> me, and it sounds very sort of, you know, what? You know, a soldier reading stuff like that. I just find it interesting. I just, I do. So the nuclear side of things then would be uh, uh, interest you? Yeah, the nuclear side of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm working in the nuclear industry now, effectively. So um, of course, yeah. Uh, so yeah, a, a sort of basic understanding of it is is good. Um, the Harwell site is really, you know, the science and technology part that you're interested in is a much wider aspect that the home of nuclear energy was in Harwell. 
it was d developed. They've, they've got hangers there, which have got all old test reactors in there of all different types. <coughs> so it's not just one reactor where you put loads of, you know, plutonium in and then re react with each other. Um, you know, with cobalt, coal, uh, uh, cobalt being sort of the agitator of it all. There's a whole, you know, aspect of different reactors there. And again, if you have a look on Google Earth, you'll see all those old reactors there. And it was the home of the nuclear industry. Was the home? Are they? Do they? Have they got any reactors there now? Active, uh, no, there's no active. active no, they don't produce any power now. Um, the, the the site deals um, with the processing of nuclear material now, which is interesting in itself, isn't it? Because it is, yeah. They're, one of the things I've noticed over the last couple of months, for whatever reason, I've no, for whatever reason I've noticed it, is the the intent to make nuclear energy a, a more acceptable option for renewable energy in the public eye. Yeah. From, from one of the things I've heard or read is that nuclear energy produces next to no nuclear waste that causes an issue uh it's, it's a very green form of energy yeah it's a very green form of energy but um it's more green than uh, yeah than than it, turbines not, and all that yeah is oh yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's very green the, the, the it's the, the issue with it is isn't the short-term energy processing part of it is the long-term process of it now. And now, you know, I'm not saying I work in the nuclear industry, I'll protect it as, a, as, a, as an armed police officer, so I'll protect it. But um, is the post-period. Um, so once it's run its course, uh, the material's been used and it's produced the power that it's needed, it's then the long-term processing of disposal and, and, and dealing with it afterwards, which is, which is the, the element of um, nuclear energy, which is, you know, I suppose, ungreen. It's the, it's the part of energy where causes the most concern. It's the disposal of nuclear material, the processing of it afterwards. And it's not just um, the material itself. Anything that comes in contact with it, you know, where, where there's, there's, there's lots of buildings all around where we work, and they're dealing with material which has been in contact with nuclear material. So that becomes waste as well. It, it becomes um, reactive. We, you know, we, we frequent areas where there's nuclear material uh, in our daily work. What, uh, what protective measures do you have to take to do, to do that? Uh, it's all it's all contained. It's all protected. It's in barrels. It's in proper storage. Although you know you can be reasonably close to it, um, the protection measures that they have in place, the lead walls, the water containers, all stops the radiation coming through. So although our exposure to it is is frequent, it's it's very limited. It's very limited. On the subject of that protection of nuclear facilities, sites, material, transit. What's perceived as the bigger threat, terrorism or espionage, uh, or something else? Uh, no, there is, there's always a threat from many different angles, and we have to consider all of those as as, uh, as, as uh, police officer protecting nu uh, nuclear material. There is a terrorist threat, and that's the thing that we uh, we focus a lot on. We 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 train to protect against that. Uh, we do a lot of training, in fact, uh, as a force. I think um, very well trained. Very very narrow field of, of speciality, but very good at that. Very narrow field of speciality. But there's always the insider threat as well. So we have to have the security measures to deal with that, um, you know, uh, the control measures that we have. If you ever went to the, so the, to the site, you have to go through quite a, a considerable process of getting your pass to get in. You wouldn't, you know, if you turned up now, you'd probably, you know, you'd be there for a few hours getting in. The old thumbs up doesn't work then. No, it's on the gate, no, like no. A high five as you go <laughs> past the guy on the gate, it's not going to work, no. <laughs> Um, 
yeah, yeah you, you, that's not going to work. So you'd have to, you know, you have to go through quite a considerable, and you have to sit down and you have to go through a briefing as well. You even get a questionnaire, in fact, uh, that you'll fill in. And if you don't pass the questionnaire, you don't. Oh, like in. a test. Yeah, you do. You get a test. You sit down, you watch a, a 15 minute video, and it's all about um, not just the security element of it, but your safety on site as well. You know, if you see a sign nuclear material, don't go in there. Um, so it's, it's, there's a safety aspect t- attached to it. Um, but if you, if you don't pass the questionnaire, you don't go in. It's as simple as that. Mm. How much train- when you say you do a lot of training, how much training are we talking? Like percentages? What? Oh, percentages. Half uh, the well, time we spent training? Uh, well, at unit, we, we do daily training packages. That's um, probably, um, we'll do uh, a daily training package once every three months. But then we have a what we call RT packages. And RT packages is a, is a three-day long training package. And we do that once every three months or four months, depending on the rotation. Um, but that's intense training. It's, I, I quite like the training actually. I w- coming from a military background, going into a policing training environment was quite alien to me. And it took me some, some time to, to adjust to, you know, you know, in the military, it's very kinetic, very, you know, you, you, it's, you, you're going in with the intention of, of killing, you know, that's the intention of the military training. With the police, it's a very different aspect. So it's, it's much more cautious, but I think very good. I think the training is very good. Um, and we'll do that sort of three three or four times a year. Uh, it's a very mature sense of training as well. You, you, are, you are given the basics, you're given the tools, you're given the task, and you're allowed almost to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. And it's, it's a good way of training. I like it. Whereas in the military, you, you, you tend to get a clip around the ear and, you know, kicked in the right direction. With the police training, you're allowed a wider scope of achieving your, your goal. But then it's, it's scrutinised much more afterwards. So any action you, you take, you have to be able to justify, not just by your actions, but legally as well, because of the nature of what we are. Um, you have to, you know, to understand the law uh, and the situation and, you know, the remit of what you you've been given to do it's yeah it's good i, I like the training i think it's very good you have to do the same thing in the military though i'm guessing just not a, as a, um uh an indeed uh, level but do you think sometimes that that can be in going overboard i'm not suggesting that yeah the constabulary does go overboard with it but you think that going overboard with it can be an inhibitor in in, in inhibitor in when there is an action in terms of inhibiting the reactions of the individual or team to the yeah. to the threat because if you remember, there have been some instances within the military yeah. on tours and circumstances over long periods of time where so do you remember are you probably out when it yeah, went on, on. but the courageous restraint thing came in uh, no. it was uh well, it, it was um so. I, I think it was the gurkhas that went on tour at the time but it came in as they went on tour and some other obviously there's some other units on tour and i can't remember if it was iraq or afghan so i can't remember yeah. it's one of those two though so telegraphy um, and the courageous restraint thing, as I recall, the people now are, going, are screaming at me because I'm going to recall it poorly. But s- along the lines of the message, along the lines to frontline troops, was along the lines of um, uh, think twice about shooting back. Ah, okay. thing, which yeah. is like completely, you know, if you get shot at, think think twice about shooting back, kind of thing. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. What it was. So with the point of it being. Oh, I'm not sure what the point of it was. Well, yeah, I'm not sure what the point. And, of it and was. The, the point of it is, it, it's to pre- prevent innocents getting caught up in the gunfire, and it's also to prevent blue on blue or any other incidents like that happening. Because we we get to assess, fire, assess, and it's done methodically. It's not done 
quickly. The habit I had to get out of is, is in the military, it's, it's a case of, you know, um, engaging a target. If you're shooting at them and they're moving, or they're, you, know, you're, you don't have to hit them to stop them, you just have to stop them firing back at you as an initial burst. And that's the, the sort of the mindset in the military. And trying to adopt that to the place where it's very much um, drawing and then pausing and then assessing the situation before firing. Whereas in the military, you tend to, to get in rounds down quickly, aren't you? Get some rounds down. But in the police, it's much more methodical and you have to make that assessment before engaging a target. And I found that quite difficult to, to get used to. I was trying to get rounds off quickly on the range and they were saying, no, slow down, slow down. So being more methodical about it. I think that RTR piece, though, that's yeah, yeah, <laughs> re, re, I mean that that initial reaction isn't yeah. to say there isn't no assessment beforehand. No, there is an assessment, yes, but uh, it's, it's and the yeah, different and the situation and, and also the ability evolves over time. Yes, it does. So yeah. certainly, you know, certainly in the in the highly kinetic ops and tours that went on through the through the noughties. Be people just became more experienced at doing it, yes. and they wouldn't necessarily return fire if, if for example, yeah. you couldn't identify the target for example yeah. the target in an environment where there were civvies or there may be yeah, civvies, yeah. for example. People got good at it. Well, decent well, people got good at it. Yeah, yeah. More ones didn't care. Not that I ever saw <laughs> on that. Like, yeah. In case insinuation was there, I did not mean that. Um, well, it's identifying your target, isn't it? It's it's all down to identifying your target quickly and initially and then engaging yeah so your rtr and it's the context yeah it yeah the context. And it's like you know you got, when dynamic you got assessment <laughs> of the situation and as, as it evolves when you go in advance to contact for example well it's pretty much guaranteed that yeah. anything is going to be shooting at you well yeah well it depends <laughs> if you're going out looking for a fight then yeah expect to get into a fight um but if, if you're in a situation where you're not expecting it uh, then obviously you've got to make that assessment more clinically um but yeah, the, the training with with the the police was I think I think it's very good. It, it's, it's it's very mature and it's very it's very sort of um, do what you need to do, but then have to justify your actions. Now this might be something you know as as simple as you know uh, a fight between two individuals. You know why you carried out the actions you carried out. Do you stop and assess the situation? See if they've got knives. If they've got knives, then obviously you act. And being being armed policemen, um, there are limitations on what we can do. You know, uh, us going to a, a sort of a brawl is not an environment where you want to be taking weapons. So these these kind of things, we we don't get involved in. We shouldn't get involved in because that you're introducing weapons into a, an aggressive situation. It shouldn't be there. Uh, but equally, if there's a knife in the fight, then yeah, that justifies the use of, of weapons and, and, and progressing that on, on that force. Um, and the training is very good at sort of getting you getting you um, sort of focused in on, on those elements of what you do. It's very good at bringing people because the, the CNC recruits from civilians directly into armed policing, and it's very good actually at getting people um, from not using weapons before and, and not being familiar in a, in a sort of weapon environment to being able to use weapons safely in a civilian environment. It's very good at that. It is very good at that. And uh, one example is, is, is one of the people that I trained with. She was a dentist before coming into the CNC. Um, Why did she choose to train for that? Um, she, she left dentistry. I think she, um, she'd 
moved on from dentistry. She, she wasn't getting on with it. Uh, so for whatever reasons, she decided to go into armed police. And she was also living up at um, Sellafield. She lived in that area, was looking for work, went to the CNC. So, um, and she was a dentist before. So she then went from being a dentist to being carrying a weapon in a civilian environment over the, t- the period of training. The, the training is, is four months long. And, and they managed to get her to do that. Very good at that. Um, for people with experience with weapons, like myself or other military, and there's quite a lot of ex-military w- within the force, um, we get quite frustrated because we want to do weapon training on, you know, every day, and you know, we want to do more and more and more, um, and there just isn't scope for for doing that in the CNC. So for people more developed, it can be a little bit frustrating, but for people from you know uh, an unexperienced background into it, it's, yeah, it's very good at doing that. I think. Yeah, my f- the friend who shall not be named, who's in the in the CNC, he mentioned that yeah. kind of frustration as well. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, he seems to be enjoying it. It yeah. sounds really, it sounds really interesting. I also like I that you'd get those kind of people, like a, a dentist, being in there. It's like that that um, that broad sort of scope range of oh. people you get in those kind of organisations. Something you don't yeah. really find in the military, apart from sometimes when you get reserves deployed in an op, and yeah. it turns out to be like a doc or something. He's a doctor, <laughs> and then yeah, he's, yeah. he's yeah. like a charm in in four power or whatever, and he's sat in some saga. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? You're yeah. a lawyer. Yeah. What are you doing? Oh, I wanted to get out of the car. Jesus. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to get out of the office. Yeah, mental. Yeah, mental. Uh, but you, you, you're right. You, you're exactly right. That that wide scope of skills brings so much to it. I think. Well, again, <coughs> I'll, I'll use uh, uh, as an example. Um, what she she didn't bring with with sort of military and uh, um, weapon skills. She brought a, a huge amount in in those soft skills, those communication skills, that ability to. I mean, she could bring even even the most sort of agitated situation to a calm situation just by the way she spoke just by the way she you know a body posture uh, communication skills um you know incredible she could you could she, um, make a situation very easy to handle with from what was quite a difficult situation when you first arrive in the scene uh, yeah, and I, I used to like working with her a lot for that for that reason um you know i think i think again a military mindset is you know you approach a problem I'm working with powers as well. Powers tend to have the, the idea you approach a problem. Careful, you know. I oh, know. Yeah, I'm gonna get, <laughs> you're going to reach over the table. You're sort of filling me in. But, you know, if if there's a problem, and it's not just powers, but the military in general. If there's a problem, hit it with a hammer. If that doesn't work, get a bigger hammer. <laughs> you know, that, that sort of mindset to you know, solving a problem. Whereas she, she brought a different approach to solving problems, and it was brilliant. I think it's something that... Um, Sort of soft skills, I, I would say, are, are really underestimated, and I only ever realised how important they were when you know you're working with interpreters. Like in, in Bosnia, you, you realise that those communication skills, you know, soft skills in, in in dealing with the situation are so important. But you don't really get to experience it yourself because you're doing it through an interpreter. And the and so, same as when I was working in Kabul, you know, we had interpreters there, um, and they were brilliant. And, and I would, you know, yeah. yeah they probably saved our lives in some situations just by their understanding of their own culture, of course, but their soft skills, their communication skills, their ability to speak to people, their ability to turn an agitated situation into a calm one um, through soft skills. And it's it's something, yeah, I, 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 I enjoy a lot actually learning soft skills. And I, I learned this firsthand in the marathon um, and, and your soft skills because... 
you're working with a lot of cultures in, in the maritime industry, you know, whatever the crew might be, it might be an Indian crew or Filipino crew, uh, maybe, you know, Eastern European or Russian crew, or even mixed in many times, uh, many cases. <coughs> so your ability to understand cultures and just opening comments. So, for example, if I was speaking to, um, say I got on board and there was an Indian captain, it's a soft handshake, and then you put your hand on your chest and you... Because that's a that's a humbling gesture. So although you're opening the, the conversation, you put your hand on the chest as, an, as a humbling gesture, and it sets the sets the tone. So he understands this culture, and you can you can you communicate. You know, like sitting opposite each other. The way we're sat opposite each other now, if you're together with a captain, it's it's quite confrontational. A European captain would see that as a confrontation because we're sat opposite each other. But if you sit as we do now, slightly you know, 30, 30 degrees off, there's nothing in your field of mm. Feel, and so you feel more comfortable. You relax a little bit more, um, you know. And equally, if I wanted to show you something, I can show it you without having to turn it around. So just soft skills like these, and I think they're they're so important. Indians are mad, aren't they? I've, Indians are. I, I don't mad. think I've worked as many cultures as, as you have, but but two like I work with a lot was Indians mm. and oh, uh, Koreans, Indians, okay. Koreans, and what was this doing? Just, uh, yeah, CP. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, right, yeah, Indians, yeah. Koreans, and Chinese. Ah, uh, okay. Right? Yeah. The, the, the most horrible were the Chinese. Like, oh my <laughs> God. Oh my God. I would not want to work for a Chinese company. Like, we were security, you know, do, we were working yeah. for a company contracted to that yeah, security the Chinese details, yeah. company. It was, it was on oil rigs, you know, oh, on, okay. on land, on land, oil rigs in Iraq. Um, oh, Chinese, okay, yeah, yeah. the Chinese, they they were slave workers. They had no issues. The Koreans as well, interesting, South Koreans yeah. as well. I won't name, ah, I will. Yeah, so go. the Koreans are Sam, Samsung engineering. Ah, uh, okay, which, yeah. Which, you know, and, and uh, they were slave drivers, like <laughs> absolute slave drivers. They didn't care for, when you think about Korea, you think, yeah. hmm. They come from a culture who knows about oppression and yeah, uh, yeah. blah, blah, blah. They're, they're next door to North Korea. No, yeah. they don't give a shit. They don't, they don't <laughs> give a shit. Um, they, were, they, were, they were managing a contract. I say they, the Koreans. Yeah. And it was around about 5,000 people, right? So you had a security force, which was us, yeah. you know, CP firm doing it, mostly uh, mostly local nationals, and you had expats running the show. Yeah. And then you had the Samsung Engineering, they're employed, a workforce, I think it was 5,000. It was in the region of that. Huge. Half of those were Iraqi local nationals. Uh, okay. Half of them were Indian local nationals flown in. Samsung dictated when the Indians would get holidays or not. Samsung yeah. dictated if they could go home or not because they would they would authorize the wagons to take the guys to the airport. Yeah, the water ration in the height of summer, all year round, including the height of summer, for the workers who were out there for twelve hours a day in the sun, building on the deck, building yeah. oil, basically refinery. I think it was. I can't remember what it was, but it was huge. It's shit yeah. everywhere. Big oil installation, uh. the the third biggest construct oil and gas construction project in the world, mate. At the time, or fifth, third or is fifth. This, is this in, the, in Iraq? In a car crocky. Alkurna. And their water ration was two bottles of water a day. That's a 500 milliliter bottle. One of those. Like, <laughs> what, like that, yeah. Like two what you got your hand there. Little ones. They were, get, they were allowed two of those a day. Unfucking real. Unreal. <laughs> right? That's, that's the Koreans. The Chinese, they were slave drivers, not as bad as, not as, bad as the Koreans. 
And then, uh, yeah, the Indians, just mental. They were oh. nice. They were nice people, but just barking mad. But like from a different planet, barking mad. Oh. Did you find them really polite? Oh, the ship's That's, is different though, isn't it? Yeah, the, the ship's, ship's, ship's is different. different. <laughs> oh, the, the maritime industry is is utterly brutal. It really is. It, the, it takes absolutely no prisoners whatsoever. Um, you know, th- there was occasions when uh, I, was, I was on board vessels and the crew hadn't been paid for two months. So they they literally downed tools and, and the company was arguing whether to get them home or not. You know, um, again, different different vessels. I mean, I worked on, on, on some ships. Um, we had, I won't name the contract, but there was a, there was a contract. Oh, crikey, the shipping industry. We think that the security industry is tight-lipped about things. The shipping industry is, oh, crikey. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, when, when it comes to contracts, they, they, won't, they won't give an inch. Uh, or in the slightest bit of information, if it would, if it's unlikely to undermine, you know, a a contract or you know, a, a company or, or anything that's going to be make money, then then they're very tight lipped about things and and yeah. But working on on different different ships, Chinese ships, uh, conditions on board could be. <laughs> I mean, I, I you know. Uh, they had like communion shower. I remember going for a shower one day, and I thought the walls looked a bit funny colour. So I put my finger on the wall and I pulled my finger down the wall, and it just left a trench in, in just sort of, of dirt, yeah, dirt and matted hair and grime oh, down God. the wall. And and we were all showering in this one shower. Um, you know, there's there's um, on, on certain other vessels. Some of the crews they're, they're quite comfortable with things being broken, and they won't fix it. So on board there was four washing machines three of which were broken. The other one was upstairs in the office's mess that they could only use. So they were washing their hand, they're, they're hand washing the stuff in the sinks and the bowls. Instead of fixing the washing machines? Instead of fixing the washing machines or getting them changed when you get to port, they weren't doing that. Um, you know, um, there's, there's some of the conditions. I mean, I remember going down on, on, on a particular vessel and, and I used to eat muesli in the morning so I'd go for breakfast in the morning. Say that again? Muesli in the morning. Yeah. Uh, so I'd get the muesli and I'd pour it into the bowl and I learned to leave the bowl, just give it a little shake before going, yeah, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Go and get the milk, come back, and then by, by which time it allows the cockroaches to crawl out of it. Because if you poured the milk straight in, obviously they're going to get, get in there. So you give it a shake, you see the cockroaches crawl out of the, the, the cereal, put your milk in, and, and, and away you go. Uh, you, you can eat it. But so, yeah, some of the conditions. I remember getting a meal as well, and it was, it was a, 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 a Chinese vessel. And the meal was a, you know, the little bowls you get and that we put sort of, I don't know, butter or something in. A little, used to get one of those of rice upturned on the, on your plate, um, maybe one or two kind of bits of vegetable. But then they had these three squids on a little plate, and I looked, oh, I can't eat that. And I used to have squid soup on the uh, on the on the Chinese rig. The, oh, the, the, but the, the little the little squids, and, yeah, tiny uh, little things. Yeah, yeah, and I couldn't. I said, I can't eat those. And the, and the guy opposite, he said, oh, I'll have that one in Chinese, and you. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mind those. See, that's I, oh. I enjoyed on the on the Chinese rig. I enjoyed the meal time yeah. only because it was like, what's gonna what what have we got today? Because <laughs> it was either like a taste sensation or it was just dross. It mm. depended on which chef was in the kitchen, who was in rotation, who was out. If they were tired, whatever. Yeah. Um. But the squid, I say in vertical commas, the squid soup. You go in, and it would be um, um. You know, a big fucking, a big pan with water, just water with oh, these okay. squids in it. Like <laughs> little yeah, tiny, yeah. but I didn't yeah. mind that. But the, the worst one they used to do was they used to put a pan out. So you go and get your food, put a pan out and it, it would be 
in inverted commas, soup. Yeah. And all it was was the water they'd cooked the rice in. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was it. <laughs> yeah. That was it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Was yeah. Water, starch <laughs> water. Starch, yeah, starch that's what it is. Starch water, yeah. Yeah, fucking hell. And some, yeah, some, of the, some of the conditions on board, it could be terrible. I mean, 70% of the time, they're actually very good. You know, most, really? Yeah, yeah, most of the time. And the, the contracts we had with Ambry, you know, the, the, the contracts were good. You know, we had like you know, the shell contracts and, and sort of, you know, you know um, uh, your LNG tankers, the, the big ones that carry liquefied natural gas. They're always top class, you know, very good conditions. Why is that then? It's just because... Uh, the, the companies have good contracts. They look after the vessels. A lot of a lot of <coughs> uh, companies who less scrupulous ones, I suppose, uh, conditions aren't so good. Um, you know, I remember walking into the to the kitchen once, and, and there was a it was an Indian crew, and he was he was frying something, um, and I, and I looked and said, what, "What's he frying that in?" And he had a, a metal bin lid upturned, <laughs> with oh fire, and he was frying stuff in it. Well, it was. <laughs> Binlid is a frying pan. Binlid is a frying pan. Yeah, is what it was. Um, That's a uh, Chinese vessel. uh, That was an Indian vessel. Uh, That was an Indian vessel. But yeah, the the, the, sort of the the antipode in that because some when on on Indian vessels, some of the food was amazing. Some of the most amazing meals I've ever had have been Indian food on board ships. And you know, uh, and then you'd you'd go on another Indian vessel, and, and the food would be terrible. Um, and conditions would be terrible. You know, I'm, I'm still in the habit now. I still even shave, shave my body, trim my body, hair down on my body uh, sometimes because on some vessels, I used to get bed bugs and there's nothing oh worse than being up on the bridge wings and, and you know, you're scratching your chin and you're going, oh, what is it? And, and you know, you look down and you go, oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> I know, it's, I'm still in the habit of doing it now sometimes. I've never experienced that. Oh, it's, it, it's, it's horrendous. You know, you wake up in the morning, sometimes there'll be little spots of, Blood on the bed where bed bugs will come out and they're not, and you roll them. Oh, on and oh, <laughs> no. it's disgusting, isn't it? Um, but you can't, you kind of get used to it, I suppose. Well, you did it for eight years, didn't you? I did it for eight years. You I did it for eight on. years. I oh, know, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's it's an incredible industry, and, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I would, you know, and when I when I left um, Ambry, actually, I did so with quite a heavy heart. It's not something I wanted to do, really. And, um, what did you leave for then? I left because you know, I, I've been married 27 years. You know, I've got a wonderful wife. She's supported me all this time, despite the fact I've been I was away for like 10 months of the year doing doing the marathon, and, and, and she's been strong all that time. You know, I think I'm the strong one. She's she's obviously the, the foundations of everything. But I had three daughters, five granddaughters, and when I was in the military, I'd I'd spent. I think in the military, I was married for 18 years of that, and nine years of that, or maybe not, I was away. So I'd missed like, so much of my own children's bringing up. Uh, yeah. You know, I'd felt, you know, I, I felt I've got five grandchildren now, and I need to spend more time at home. I'd love to keep doing this, but if I keep doing this, I'm going to miss out on probably the most important thing in my life, my children and grandchildren. Um, so I, I, I moved on. Um, and, and join the police, and it's 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 worked out actually. You know, I enjoy enjoy spending time with the grandkids now a lot. It's great. Um, they all call me Blair Blair because the <laughs> the, el- the eldest of the grandchildren, when she was first born, she couldn't say granddad, so she used to call me Blair Blair, and then that's just passed on. I was like, oh, dad, so you'll call me Blair Blair now. Um, but it's you know, it's kind of you know, it's it's nice. You know, I, I like it. Going back to the um, going back to the maritime what about the variation in the ports 
What what was that like? How 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 different was that? How varied was that? Um, ports. Um, so if you went to um, the, the ports that we all go to, we're all sort of Red Sea, um, Africa, uh, Asia. Um, ports actually are very very well run. They're they're, they're a big. Um, security element attached to them bearing in mind there's, there's, there's different security levels um, so uh, as maritime security we're going into a port with weapons so we have to adhere to international laws we have to you know, bond the weapons at 12 miles um, and the way the ports are all run are very good um, one of my favorite ports is probably Mombasa oh, I love Mombasa I think Kenya is a fantastic country um, uh, there's a club there called Florida's Florida's. If you're ever in Mombasa, go go to Florida's. You'll be well looked after. Um, and a lot of the guys used to enjoy it there. Um, but it's one of my favourite ports, uh, Mombasa. The yeah, Indian ports uh, tend to be um, not so so good. Um, little little rougher, but very well run actually. Indian culture actually is is, is very uh, good at running things. No one knows how they work. No one knows. <laughs> the functionality of, of the ports in India, but they work very well. Um, Dubai. It's Dubai. If you go ashore in what Dubai. What do you think of Dubai? I'm not sure what the feel about it. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Um, Dubai. I think it's an amazing place, but to me, it feels a little bit characterless. It's a bit clean. It's a bit characterless. Um, and we, you know, we, we, you know, there's a debate going on in the UK about immigration. But you think about <coughs> Dubai, 80% of their population is foreign workforce. Only 20% of, of, of Dubai, and it's the same in Muscat as well, 80% of their workforce there is all foreign. It's either Pakistani or, or, or Indian workforce there. And a massive illegal immigrant problem as there's, well. Yeah, there's a huge, huge, yeah. And, you know, a lot of, uh, and it's something we used to see a lot in the maritime people trafficking going across the, the Red Sea, especially when the Yemen conflict sort of, you know, um, really become, you know, impacting the civil population. There was a lot of people trafficking going across the southern Red Sea, going between sort of Djibouti. Uh, the Strait of Hormuz, is it? Uh, the Strait of Hormuz is in uh, up north. That's in uh, the Persian Gulf, the okay. Strait of Hormuz, between Iran and UAE. Uh, that's where a lot of the, the piracy issues come, you know, the drone attacks recently, which we might come on to later, I guess. But um, uh, the southern Red Sea is the Bab el Mandeb. And you've got Yemen down there, you've got Djibouti, um, you've also got Eritrea uh, on, on the, the east coast of Africa, and then Saudi Arabia on the, 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 the opposite coast. So the conflict there uh, in, in Yemen caused a lot of uh, problems with the Houthi rebels in, in sort of in the Bab el Mandeb. The world shipping traffic goes through the Babel Mandeb. It all goes down the Gulf of Aden and then goes goes through the Babel Mandeb. So there's a lot of tension there. And the Houthi rebels were in a, were in a situation there where they could really control global, shlip, global shipping. They can shut that off. And in, on occasions there was attacks. They'd, they'd used um, uh, anti-aircraft missiles and other missiles to hit vessels coming through there. Uh, in response to that, Saudi Arabian put a, a large military presence in the water there, along with sort of the Russians... Why were they hitting the ships? To, for what um, they, it was uh, the Houthi rebels were just trying to um, pressure the international community into in, in, into either helping or, or sorting the situation out, whatever they were they they were doing. But they they used to fire uh, mainly Saudi Arabian ships was their their prime target because of the conflict with Saudi Arabia. So they tried to impact Saudi Arabian shipping by doing so. Um, but. It also led to a lot of sort of criminality across that 
part of the water as well. You get a lot of people smuggling, and we'd see it all the time. Um, you know, crews would become quite nervous about seeing lots of small boats, and, and the security team would as well. Lots of small boats zipping across. You know, you'd see them flying across, going one way, carrying whatever they were carrying, maybe weapons, drugs, uh, money, uh, money, going the other way, carrying people, and it was just a constant traffic. There's there's a group of islands down there um, uh, that, that were used for for hopping or um, hopping across. Um, so there's Jazeera Islands and, and, and a few others down there that they could they could use a constant small boat movement down there. As security in that part of the water, you, you're really looking for the threats. Now they, they say you should identify a, a threat at five nautical miles. That's that's not realistic. It's not realistic. You can't see the detail. No, you can't see the detail. So realistically, you're looking at identifying a threat at about three nautical miles, which is a realistic um, time frame. Now if they're doing uh, the, the skiffs were doing probably, I don't know, let's say 20 knots. So they'd be doing one nautical mile every three minutes. So that gives you nine minutes to go through your whole drill. But that's sounds quite long, a long time. But if you've got you know crew on the deck or there's people, nine minutes isn't that long really. So you've got to get the crew in, you've got to account for everybody, you've got to lock down, you've got to secure all things, you've got to go through all your drills. How are you identifying that distance? Because three miles is still a long way. It's three miles is, how a, is a long way. You're looking at their behaviour. So, because there's a large fishing communities there, there'll be lots of small fishing boats. And the pirates, it gets more complicated than that, really, because the pirates will sit amongst those fishing fleets. And in actual fact, the pirates are fishermen. They might be fishermen in the morning, and fishermen are scared of pirates as well, so they do carry weapons on board. So it can be quite... Fishermen are scared of pirates. They'll carry weapons to protect themselves, but then they themselves might become pirates later on. You know, if they're not making money from fishing, then, you know... Uh, they'll they'll go to smuggling, and if they they're not making money from smuggling, then they'll they'll turn to piracy. Um, so you, you're trying to identify them at three nauticals, and you have to go through your whole drill. So it doesn't it doesn't sound long, but you can only actually engage any true threat at around about eight. If you've got a sniper off, was that about eight hundred meters? So you've got all that time of doing what feels like not a lot. You're busy, the crew are busy, and things are going on. But as a security element, you can't really put your weapons into play until the last 800 metres. And that's only warning shots. You can only really start to fire accurate shots at, what, four, 500 metres? Well, on a ship even living less, uh, arguably. Well, must be mental with the way the boat moves and the way the uh, target's yeah, moving. Yeah, they do, yeah. Well, the boat's moving left and right, up and down. You're moving left and right, up and down. You're also transiting, so you're also moving along. You've also got the closing effect because you're firing down. Well, you, you'll know this. You're not firing flat, so you're full of shot goes down because it's not just falling at the speed of gravity but at the speed velocity of the bullet as well going down because you're firing from 30 meters up out of the water you land high though if you shoot an angle yeah yeah you land high yeah but it affects your fall or shot and that's another consideration you have to make if you're moving around so it's it's um yeah it it's it's uh a very short period right at the end of quite high high stress very rarely and if I only had to ever do it once, because again, you, you're you're identifying that threat early, you're reacting early, you're deterring the threat early, and then they know, they know at which point they've been cottoned onto, and they'll turn away if you go for all your drills properly. Oh right. I think the 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 that's really the southern the southern Red Sea. The 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 threat on, in the Somali basin. So on the east coast, Somalia isn't Somali. Uh, it's two lands, really. 
northern coast is Somaliland, and it's it's all Somalia, but it's 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 very tribal. And the northern coast of Somalia into the Gulf of Aden, it has it has um, a government. It's it's reasonably stable as as far as Somalia goes. Somalia or Somaliland, the, the northern bit, Somalia, the sort of the Indian Ocean side of it. Piracy is is motivated not just by criminality but by desperation and that difference in my experience is profound someone who's doing it for criminality has a line to draw you know at what point does this stop being profitable and start being dangerous if, if, you're, if you're doing it for criminality you say, right i'm not going to profit out of this and i'm putting myself into too much danger there's a line now when it's caused by desperation that line doesn't exist they're, they're desperate more risk yeah they'll go much higher risk because uh, you know, it doesn't matter how much risk I'm putting myself in. I'm desperate here. So that, that scale tips in the balance and they become much more brash, much more, you know, foolhardy and, and they, will, they, will, they will really go for it. And especially in that part of, of, of the sea, there's, there's a, you've got the island of Socotra, which is on the, the uh, out corner of Africa. Now that used to be quite, a, uh, the gap between the Socotra and Somalia, it used to be quite transit. A lot of vessels used to go down south on there. No go zone, absolute no, no go zone. Yeah, well, yeah, probably now I've been out of the game for for a couple of years now. But then, absolute no go zone. A lot of smaller vessels or uh, fishing vessels go through there, and it was a regular, very regular occurrence where vessels would be approached, attacked, or even taken in that area, going through that gap. So ships use the IRTC, which is the, the long corridor, which is um, International Recommend Transit Corridor, which goes down the Gulf of Aden, and then they head south from there. When they are attacking a big ship, when the pirates are coming to attack a big ship like mm-hmm. yours, what what is their route onto the vessel? What are they trying to do? As in to 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 breach it, if you like. How are they how so, are they trying to get on? Well, they they will try to approach. Uh, they will try and they'll do an assessment, a risk assessment on the vessel. They will see if it's got security on board, and they'll be able to tell that by activity on the bridge and about the security wire. If it's got wire, if it's got hoses attached. One of the things that you do when they're approaching is you turn your your fire hoses on so it sprays. Have you seen? Um, Captain... No. No. Captain Phillips. Yeah, Captain no. Phillips, yeah. Well, you spread the hoses everywhere, and it's a visible <coughs> deterrent. So if you've done that, they've, they've got a good idea. There's likely to be security on board, so they'll deter their attack. If you get close enough and they don't see that... What's the point of the hoses, sorry? It's, it's a visual deterrent. Oh, OK. It's, it's supposed to just uh, make... If you come alongside, it difficult to see because it sprays it. salt water in your faces. Um, but from a greater distance, it's a visible deterrent. So it, it's an indication that there's some security on board. But if they don't see that, then they'll become more brush and they'll, they'll approach. And their aim is to come alongside <coughs> a midship, ladders on, climb on, and then take the ship hostage effectively. Um, and that's their ultimate uh, goal. There was, in the, the early days, a, a sort of going rate of, I think it was about $60 million was the going rate for the vessel and then negotiable for, for um, hostages. Um, if any hostages were taken, and they do did get onto the mainland, then they would be passed. They get on land and they get passed through this very sort of tribal Somalia, and they get passed through one tribe to the next, and there's payments and agreements that go on as they go through. Uh, and negotiators have a real nightmare, actually, trying to negotiate and sort of navigate these, these tribal areas, uh, trying to get um, sort of pe- people out. Yeah, I had a guy on called Simon Marion. Yeah. You know, have you heard of him? Yeah. He's, uh, is he a uh, negotiator, is he? No, no, no. I think he was a... Oh, sorry, Simon, if you listen. I think he was a bootneck. 
anyway, the point uh, the point is he he <laughs> during his time doing private security, maritime and yeah. like just normal sort of private security CP work, got taken hostage three times. Oh, twice, two times was on the boats, and one time it was it was a short thing yeah. on the ship. They took it over. Then it was a quick, quick de-escalation. And the second time, he got taken on land. He uh, online for so I think, he would have two or three weeks. Like, <laughs> yeah. pa- passed around from one yeah. tribe to the next. Yeah, uh, inter- interesting, interesting to hear. It. He, he, he's quite um, like many of us are, like mega modest with it. Oh, okay, but they, yeah. they, they, they didn't feed them too badly, and they just kept them, kept them played with alcohol. Well, the, he, he, <laughs> he was smashed a, for three weeks. He was a sellable <laughs> asset. That's why. Oh right. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's an asset. Oh, if, okay, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. he has value. Mm. You know, there's value to him. If, you know, if, if he turns up battered, bruised, and you know, in ill repair, they're going, "Oh, come on!" You know, they, they don't see him as a human. They see him as a product. You know, it's something to sell, something of value. It's a, it's, it's a weird mindset, isn't it? Really. Oh, I don't know. Zuckerberg's yeah. got it nailed. <laughs> yeah, <absolutely. laughs> yeah, yeah. And Bezos, he's got it nailed. Well, yeah, they have. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah. If everything, you know, yeah, material or flesh and bone is the sellable asset, isn't it? I suppose. But yeah. Um, but that's that's the way they 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 see it there. They used to the, they used to um, it's it's prevalent in in Somalia. They chew cat. You know what cat is? Cat is a it's a root, and they chew it, and it's a, it has an amphetamine effect. Oh, uh, and it makes on. makes makes their mouth red. It makes their eyes red, uh, and they spit red. And you see it a lot. So I used to see it a lot in um, Eritrea um, with all the crane operators operating because they you know they work long hours and they would be sitting in the crane operating taking cargo off the ship and putting it on the on, on shore dumping it into trucks um and off you, their tits on yeah cut. off their tits on cut yeah <laughs> <laughs> they'd be just chewing it you see the mouths would be it looks like you know oh crikey they're crazy they think that they think it makes them bulletproof and you know you know have you, have you, did you try it no i haven't no, tried no. it no it, it looks disgusting uh but yeah what's the plan the plant? I don't know what the plant. You're going to go. I wonder if it grows in the UK. I get it all like balcony. It's rhubarb. Yeah, it's like rhubarb. I don't yeah, know. I've never yeah. used it. Um, it's. Um, I think um, some of the Somali communities in in London use it. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know the legalities behind it. Really. I think. I'm not sure it's illegal. I don't really? Know. I don't know. Yeah. It might be one of those things where it's illegal to. Use it in that way, but yeah, because yeah. there's a, there's a cactus. There is a cactus you can buy in a in the shop. You can go to a, a garden store. There's uh, a type of cactus you can get, <laughs> and if you, I'm not joking, and if you can Google this, kids, uh, not kids, you if you slice it, eat the slices. It it it's uh, it's either. It's like you're eating the flesh inside. You're not. not, not yeah, yeah, you know, the flesh inside, it. and it um, it's a psycho psychedelic. It's got a psychedelic drug in it. I can't remember what it is. It might be psilocybin or something like that. But yeah, but <laughs> you're not allowed to buy it for that purpose, and it's not well known. So, so you can go if it. you go into a garden store, legend has it. I genuinely have not gone in. I've got a friend who did go to. He read about it. He went to the. He went to the garden store to pick this thing up, and he said, "You went in there." And he, he asked the guy who ran the garden store for this cactus. <laughs> and the guy gave him this look like, oh, <laughs> okay. He's like, you know, you gotta, you're a young guy going in asking for a specific kind of cactus. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. not he's going just... in to prop up his, uh, his plot, is he? He's, gonna, he's gone into. He's done a, his research before experience. going in, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, I'll show you where that cactus is. 
Um, he tried it and he had a really mild, really mild effect. Short, really short, mild effect. But I can't remember what it's called, but you can, you can easily Google it. Psychedelic cactus. Um, that's that story. Uh, yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah, I'll, sort of, I'll sort of look into that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the piracy side of things is fascinating. I, and I, do you know what? I hadn't thought about that side of the criminality versus survival piece criminality versus poverty piece well it's all criminality but the, yeah. the motivation behind it, it yeah. sets it in a very different light it does yeah because though some of those places didn't have a fact some was well, well yeah Somalia, I think, for example yeah Somalia at the time it was 2011 so uh, there was the ongoing conflict with sort of um the, the, the tri tribal conflict going on with the UN forces in in, in there as well I think there was a, there was a severe drought as well in 2011 in Somalia um, that along with sort of the increase, uh, like Al Shabab is, a, is a, an Islamic extremist group in, in the area, and they they started to um, get involved with the, the Parsi industry, as it was. Um, so yeah, the, it was it was a perfect storm, if you like, all leading to people chewing cat. <laughs> <laughs> Mega. Yeah. How did you end up choosing the CNC to go to go? Did you go straight into that after leaving Maritime? Uh, I did, yes. Um, I, I was I was looking around. I was I was basically looking um, for a job where I had some sort of transferable skills. So my 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 soft skills and my military skills and some of my my weapon skills and and everything that I carried from my military and my maritime background, something that was transferable into into life at home, something where I could be at home and closer to home. You know, for for family reasons. Um, I looked at British Transport Police. weren't weren't to recruiting at the time, um, police. There was a, a, a long waiting list to get through, um, and through my, my research, it just happened that CNC was recruiting at the time. They had courses ready to go. Um, I I was quite fortunate in the fact that I managed to get through the recruiting process quite quick. It's taken takes people quite a long time to get through the recruiting process. How long are we talking? Oh, crocking nine months to a, to a year, um, but this is people sort of winding down on their current job and then picking up uh, the recruiting. So they've got to go through all the security vetting and 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 the rest of it to get to get in. Um, and then the, the the training is four months long. Um, uh, what's the intensity of the training? Five days a week, seven days a week. Yeah, four months. Was five it? days a week. Um, it, it's it's done in packages. So you, so you have your your legal side of it, which is done in Oxford. Um, a uh, place called Cullum, where they do the training there, and then you go um, to Aldershot, in fact, and do a lot of your, your training down there for the for the weapons side of it, and and use uh, the ranges at Bisley. What weapons are you rocking? Uh, we've got G36s. Oh, nice. Uh, which is uh, it's a good one. Yeah, I'm um, through the maritime. I've used lots of different weapons. And I used to instruct on, on on a whole host of different weapon um, types. You know, uh, I used a lot of the M16 variants. Um, but you know, AK variants. Um, you know, um, one of my favourites being the SLR, you know, used. Yeah, it's that day. You keep pointing at me, right? When you say like, it, SLR, I'm not that old, mate. You're not. <laughs> no, no, but you're aware of what it is. <laughs> yeah, you know what yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that that to me is is my favourite because it's it's a big and it looks you know it's it's a gun. You know, if you pull that out, <laughs> people, you know, people pull a gun out and you go, okay, yeah, that's the gun. And you pull that out, people go, ooh. That's a that's a big unit that one, and it, it was my favourite. You know, it, it packs a punch as well. Um, but um, the, the G thirty six is, is is an unusual setup to me. I'm, I'm, In what way? Um, I, I don't like the the operation of it. It's unusual because cocking handles on the top. 
I've yeah. I, what came in? What came have in? You, so, have you no, but I've you. I haven't used the G. It's not that I remember any G thirty six. May have fired it once somewhere. I don't know. But I remember when they brought in the sharpshooter rifle in the service. Ah, okay, yeah. And when I was when I, I got an opportunity to use the M sixteens early on in my career. Yeah. And yeah, they were top cocking. I didn't. I I didn't like it. I think because what I didn't like on the M sixteens is because the it just it was a bit flimsy. It's very toy-like, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. but but even the cocking mechanism. So you <laughs> could easily twist that cocking lever yeah, you that you can, pull yeah. back and easily twist, which just just to me shouts, there's going to be a breakage here. Yeah. <laughs> Something's going to break on this. Um, it does feel very toy But then the opportunity yeah. of the right and left-handed firing gives... I don't know. I don't know. So G36, okay. Right, so it's got a top... Top, yeah, top cocking. Yeah, top it's, cocking. It, it's actually ambidextrous the way you can use it because we've got the folding stock... Um, we've got the K variant, so it's a, it's a, a short barrel. What else don't you like about it? Um, it's not balanced very well, I don't think. Oh, okay. It's oh. not a bullpup, is it? No, it's not. It's not. It's not well balanced. So, is it, so to hold, where is it heavy at the front? It's, it's front heavy. Yeah, it's front heavy. It has a handle on the front, so you, you can you can carry it quite comfortably. Um, um, but for, for for quick control of it, it's yeah, it's, it feels clumsy to me. It's a it's quite a heavy weapon as well for for what it is. You can get you can get much more bang for your buck with other weapon systems with uh, you know a, a longer barrel, but a shorter design, better balanced. It's one thing I did like about the SA80 was the balance. Perfect balance. You couldn't yeah. argue with the balance. No, you can, you can rattle off. You know, you can even go automatically one-handed if you really wanted to with it, with that. But yeah, I used to like that. But um, um, we we have uh, a sidearm. Uh, Glock. Um, we were dripping with weaponry. Really. We have we have taser. We have pepper spray. Oh, we've got everything. <laughs> yeah, we've got everything. We've got the whole lot. Uh, so we've got, we're very well equipped. In fact, um, weapon-wise, for the nature of what we do, you know, we're guarding very very sensitive um, product. So yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, How much opportunity do you get to shoot, especially with the sidearm? Every every three or four months. So we do that f- three or four times a year. We we'll, we'll do training. And we'll spend a whole whole day on, on the ranges, and then the, the other training encompasses weapon use as well. So the train, oh, I think, yeah, we do a lot of training, I think, and it's it's very good. Um, we use different weapon systems for different scenarios. So you know, obviously, we're not we're not going to use you know uh, our our main firearm or G thirty six for for something which we could use a taser for. And you get different training scenarios, so you get trained in all those different weapons. Uh, Never had to fire the taser live, but I quite, I quite, uh, I quite like it actually. It's, it's why is that? Have you tased yourself? No, well, well, yeah. This is they used to, they used to do. Uh, they don't do it anymore. But I mean, many years back, they used to shoot each other to experience what it was like to get shot with it. But we don't, we don't anymore. We don't do that. We don't pepper spray each other anymore either. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you experienced the pepper spray though? I have in Germany. Yeah. How similar is it to CS? experience in terms of symptoms uh i, I thought pepsi was worse oh really yeah i thought it was worse why in what way um well uh, uh in in the military i was at a cbr instructor so i used to use cs gas all the time um cs spray i never had but the, the pepper spray i got sprayed in the face in germany there was a there was, there was a fight outside of our and the police, police turned up and they sprayed one of the, the other guys it's actually. liquid right it's not it's gas, a spray it's yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah and they sprayed one of the other guys and he was stumbling around so i went over to grab him to, to help him out and get him out of trouble and he just breathed all over me he got sprayed again and a lot of it splashed off him into me so uh yeah horrid 
horrid. I think I think the gym the gym that that's not purpose spray. They use um, mace. What's the difference? I thought it was. I, I think it's different. No, they're different 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 um, chemical formulas. Really? Yeah. And mace is worse. Mace is badder. Badder. <laughs> <laughs> it's badder. badder yeah. yeah, I think that's the stuff the Americans use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought it was the same thing. Yeah, there's there's a difference in, in combats because some are flammable and some are not. So in the event that you get sprayed with a sort of mace, that, that has a, a flammable element to it. So if you were then to, to introduce a flame or a taser to that, then it could combust. And the difference... So mace is flammable, we think. Some, some, some of these some irritants are. are flammable. Some of them are not. Mm. So that... Yeah, it, it, it has a, an impact on, on what you can use. If you introduce someone smoking, obviously you don't want to set fire to them. <laughs> Depends who it is. Yeah, it? always. You don't always want to set fire to them, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, it's the, chemi the chemical compound's just different. That's it. That's the only difference. With the constabulary, the CNC, is there any... Do you ever... Are you, like, on a... a is there not a risk? Is there ever a thing where you, in a situation, could be called up to bolster other constabularies that aren't CNC, that aren't nuclear? Uh, there, there is, well, we have um, Optempra, and Opt Optempra is uh, it's it's a element in which, uh, if there was a terrorist incident, for example, say in London, then because we are armed police, then we can be called out to support armed police on the streets, you know, to provide you know uh, security to to the general public, confidence in the public, and then prevent any other sort of escalation of any situations or any copycat incidents. Um, uh, so it's just a way of the government putting armed police officers on the streets very quickly, very effectively to support the you know, the community, uh, and that's not temporary. And then the military they would then be called in to backfill our job. Of guarding nuclear facilities, ah, ah, uh, so that's that's just a way, and it's 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 not because the military aren't capable; it's because they don't have the legal powers to deal with situations on the streets that the police have. The military is the military. And give me an example of that. Uh, well, the, the use of force powers are different. Um, so we we have the legal um, template to be able to use uh, firearms and, and and different elements of force. Where the military don't have that that legal um, element that they'd be called in, they may may be called into supporters on the ground. Uh, but any anything that we do, so for example, uh, the military don't have the legal power to stop cars, for example, or stop and search, whereas the police on land in normal situations do. So then we would stop cars, search cars, and carry out the legal side of it. You would, people would have thought it'd be carte blanche. People probably have this misconception that the military, if the military on the ground, they can do whatever they want. Have the power to do whatever they want, which isn't the case. It's yeah, it gets it gets legal, and it gets political, but there's different different powers that you have there. So uh, the, the police feel that legal power, whereas um, the military don't have the same legal powers. Um, but that's that's how, how that, that's how that that works, and it's it's very effective. And we've recently we've done uh, some training and exercise practicing that. Actually, yeah. I was I was picture taken of me and I'm all over the <laughs> all over the internet now and all over the army webpage is a picture of me doing doing that. I know in the military figures a picture of you. You get crated, didn't you? Oh, right. Build a crate, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a similar thing in the police. How long is the the how long is the contracts for with them? Like, is there a minimum term of service or what? How does it work? Um, there's you, you sign on and then it's it's pretty much. Um, 
I mean, I, I intend on staying in, until I retire. Really, want no, no intention of moving once you you're trained and you're in your unit. Then that's it. You you you, you work continuously uh, with them. There's no there's no contracts. It's it's pretty much a police contract. Uh, it's pensionable. So you know, a lot of people who who want to get into that. Uh, you can transfer your military pension. You can transfer your military pension across. I decided not to because I because I did a full term of service. I did twenty three years, so I'm now drawing my military pension, um, uh, and it pays all my bills. I live pretty much debt free, really, uh, because my pension pays all my bills. Um, yeah, I, it, I, I prefer to draw my pension as opposed to paying it into uh, a police pension. But um, yeah, it's it's good. I mean, it's, if you wanted to get into to armed police, and I think it's a very good thing to go for. Actually, I I enjoy it. I think it's you know I think it's a great job. Sound, to be honest, it does sound like it. Does it, it is, like yeah. It. I mean, th there is an element of you know, um, you, you can oversell it because there is a lot of time you, you're you're doing a, a security job, and as with you know close protection or marathon, there is a lot of sitting around sometimes. You know, you're inactive for great periods of time, but then other times you're doing some stuff that people pay a lot of money to do. So give me an example of your day-to-day -day activities. So, you, uh, you know, well, day stagging on? Uh, well, no, we don't do gate guard or anything like that. We're, we're, we're acting as police, but, but we, we protect a, a facility, uh, and it's the same for all the sites around the UK. Um, you know, whether there'd be places as large as Sellafield or as, 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 or as small as, as Harwell, um, but all equally important. Um, and you get your vehicle and you work in pairs. And um, Are you vehicle-borne then? Yeah, we're vehicle-borne, yeah. Okay, so right. we're vehicle-borne, um, and we patrol the local area. So we spend much of our time patrolling the local area, so probably a, a third of our day will be spent patrolling the local area. In in the facility and out? Yes. Okay. So right. we'll be in the facility for, for part of the day and then out of it for part of the day. Um, we get a rest period as well, so we do a 12-hour shift and we get a, a rest period within that. Um, I normally go to the gym. Uh, in that period um, but um, yeah you, you are you are busy but of course there is that element of sometimes just sitting around you know it's, <laughs> it's we all we all get that don't we you go oh god what am I doing now and then you know you're looking at your watch looking for, for the next event um, we we police the local area um, around the facilities um, and it's a, a very visual deterrent we're in proper police cars you know all marked up all, all Battenberg coloured and, and with, the, with the weapons on board and you know, you're reacting with a local community. That's yes, that's pretty much it. Um, How much liaison goes on with with the a, with Joe Joe? What do you call? What's the nickname for local? Do you have a nickname for the normal police? Yeah, I wouldn't say it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me off here. Tell no, me off here. Yeah, uh, but uh, well, I think I think a lot of a lot of police because. Because of CNC, we don't get involved in a lot of general day-to-day -day policing. We don't get involved in, you know, burglaries or, you know. So a lot of the, the police um, see us as kind of half-baked cops. We're not, of course, but we just don't get involved in that because of the nature of what we are. That's not our role. Our role is the protection of nuclear material, first and foremost. Um, we are trying to, to get more involved in, in general day-to-day -day policing, but it's not something, it's our remit. It's not something we, we, we get heavily involved in, although a lot of us would like to. We can't. We're covered in weapons, so it's, it's not suitable all times. Um, but we can do um, work with the local police. Um, they don't see us really as, as proper cops, but then armed cops, armed ARVs, also don't see us as... They must uh, hate you, do they? Uh, do they hate you? Well, because they, they have to do it. Because you're also uh, armed. Yeah, we, we're also... Well, we're, we're 
we're probably more heavily armed than they are, to be honest. Um, but again, our remit is different. Our remit, so they see us as, as sort of, you know, and, and I think because people can join straight from Civil Street into armed policing that way through the CNC. I think they, they see oh, us... of course, because yeah. with them, you can't... They have to do a long probation period, yeah. You have to go into normal cops. Yeah, you have it. to be copper, then you have to do two years on the vehicle. So all the all the ARVs have probably done, well, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing here, probably for six years in the police already before becoming an armed cop. Um, and yeah, and they're very good at what they do because they've got a lot of experience and a lot of policing experience behind them. So they are very good at what they do, whereas we're, we're sort of put straight into it. But I think the, the advantage of what we do is there's a lot of ex-military personnel in there. So, you know, we bring that to the to the party. So, you know, we all have our little remits. I think the CNC, although it's, it's a very narrow field of expertise, we're very good at that very narrow field of expertise. And we're looking at broadening out, you know, sort of diversifying a little bit. And I think we will in the future. I think we will. Oh, in what way? Well, there's, there's talk about um, going into other elements of working with the local police force. So we, um, we would de-arm, so we wouldn't be armed cops. And then as an overtime duty, you could work with local police force. And that's something that's being arranged at the moment. There's also talk uh, about um, going into more into sort of the maritime part of it, sort of you know, uh, working on vessels. Port protection. Uh, port protection, coastal patrols, things like this on vessels. So there's, there's talk of that. Whether that comes to light or not, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's the the force is trying to diversify a little bit with the, with the nuclear industry. Of course, it's you know it's um, rules are also developing small reactors, aren't they? They're, they're I don't at, know. Yeah, no. rules are also looking at developing small reactors. I think France has something like 110 different nuclear reactors. In but France. they're squared away now. Most of their power comes from nuclear power, doesn't it? Now? Yes, but they 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 don't go for the big. You know, Hinkley Point, Sellafield, huge power stations supplying, you know, a huge area. They have a lot of smaller power stations all over the place providing power to a, a, a large community, but, you know, not as big as the big ones here. So they 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 run it differently. That has to be where we go. It's got to be the way we Roll, go. Rolls-Royce are developing nuclear power stations, and then they're small. I don't know how small. I, I think, you know, you could fit them on a sort of tennis court kind of size, I guess. I don't are know. they doing this at Harwell? Are they researching at Harwell? Uh, they'll be doing their research at Rolls-Royce. Uh, where it's in Coventry. Or is where, it? Yeah, we used to be. I don't know where it is now. Oh. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know where they're working out of now. But they're they're developing um, sort of uh, smaller power stations, and there's talk about. You have to Google it. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I'm being careful with Google at the minute. I had a, a near death experience, near Google experience <laughs> on that podcast you were listening to in the car on the way up with Gaz Walsh. I just heard that. Yeah, you were speaking about it. Oh, he came on. Yeah, uh, I just heard we were talking, and yeah. my phone for the first time ever decided to wake itself up, was listening, and talked back to me about I can't remember what it said, but we were talking, but you know, we were talking about crypto and all that. I'm not saying that he said, Oh, Google's listening, and we were using some buzzwords, and it didn't like it, but it, yeah, it was definitely some weird, weird. <laughs> Do you think it listens to you? Oh, yeah, 100%. Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. I had a Huawei before that, that's a Google. I can't remember what Google phone it is. Yeah. I can't remember what it is, but I had a Huawei. Well, this one. This Huawei. And the reason I, for fuck's sake, I keep it in that camera in my head. It, when it hits this metal on the headphone, yeah, it's buzzing through. I've, I've moved my position. Yeah. I don't normally sit here. I sit there. But um, I had the Huawei before the Google phone. I bought the Huawei back out of back out of retirement because it's yeah. just brilliant. That is three years old, two or three years old. Dual SIM? Yeah. 
Yeah, dual SIM. Yeah. And it pisses all over the Google phone. Oh, the really? Google phone is the worst thing I've ever had. I'm not even joking. It is just full of bugs. It just It shit. can't be worse than a Windows phone. Oh, I never had it. No, but when you think this Google phone is brand new. Oh, okay. And this Huawei, just two or three years old, is still pissing all over it. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Huawei are good, Huawei yeah. Huawei are brilliant. Yeah. But also, you've got China listening. But yeah, I think, the Google, I think Google's listening all the time. Well, they are. For fuck, I'd say it again. <laughs> they, they are. They are listening all the time. Did you see... Oh, man. Oh, where... Did you see... Um, they're all doing it. Governments are doing it. Smartphone manufacturers are doing it. Network operators are doing it. Yeah. They're all doing it, right? Did you see... Was it yesterday I saw on the news... Let me say I saw in the news. I saw a headline and I saw a video with captions being translated. It was about Canada. So <laughs> that's as far as we went in that. Yeah. But um, Canada basically coming out. This is a, a Canadian senator. Do they have senators in Canada? A Canadian politician anyway <laughs> coming out, part of the government and saying, uh, um, apologising because they had been monitoring smart people's smartphones for location data to track <sighs> where people were going, bec- and they said it's because of the COVID pandemic, but they were tracking people's movements illegally. Illegally. Do, do, you, th- do you think you know when people sort of sign contract? Oh, yeah, tick, agree to contract. It's, it'll be in there, surely. No. But people never read the contract. No, I, no it's, it's above that, isn't it? It's, it's, it's government policy level. It's, you've got that side of it, the level at which the government can allow to invert commas, spy yeah, on yeah. you. And then you've got the other side, is what the company who owns the phone or google in this case or huawei what they are willing to do in terms of illegal activities to get the data off you data is data's where the money is where the money is it is where the money is you know and i have absolutely no doubt huawei china are milking us like my huawei phone that probably knows everything about me now that's more about you than you look at it because who the fuck am i you know it's different if i'm Boris Johnson, for example, rocking a oh, Huawei yeah. phone. I wouldn't be doing that. But you know. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Do you think? Do, do you have an? Do you have an Alexa at home? Or uh, uh, recently, yeah, recently I got an uh, uh, Amazon uh, the Echo Dot. I got ah, okay. those, yeah. Very useful. I'm very glad I got it. That doesn't kick off. Oh, my my daughter's got an Alexa at home, and and I often think yeah, that's the, 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 the round thing like that. Yeah, it's a little one. Yeah. Yeah, I got Echo Dot. An echo, an echo dot. Oh, okay. They call echoes, yeah. Anyway, and it was, uh, he's definitely listening to you all the time. Definitely. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah, because when you say Alexa, beatbox, and you know the Alexa goes starts beatboxing, or you know tell a dirty joke, and it will tell a dirty joke. Beatboxing. <laughs> Have you ever, never done that? No. When you get home, ask ask, ask your mic, well, Alexa, say Alexa, beatbox, and it will start beatboxing. I'm doing now. Alexa, beatbox. Is it doing it? Just showing me a beatbox. Hang on a minute. Uh, it must be... Alexa, do some beatboxing. So. You want more? You got it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Brilliant. So then, that device is listening to you, obviously, because you told it to listen to you. I just pressed the button. The button yeah, yeah, so yeah, you yeah, push yeah. the button. I, I, yeah. But Alexa must be listening to you all the time. Yeah. All the time, yeah. All you the have, time, because yeah. you have to say Alexa, and it's listening to you. So, yeah, what information it's getting from you, your political opinions, your, your yeah, whatever, you know, even your most intimate comments are being recorded all the time. Mm. Scary. 
very useful. Very I, I can't argue. It's very useful. Alexa, set a time of 10 minutes. Alexa, what's the weather? Is it going to rain today? Alexa, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Alexa, do some beatboxing. <laughs> well, there you go. What on earth are you doing? Um, we've got a few minutes left. Right. What is... Right. You're often seeing you because yeah. Mazzoni Dalton yeah, has he, 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 roped you into Yombathon. He has, yes. He, he, threw, he threw me at this, in, into this. Did group. you literally have no choice? Uh, I don't know. It's, 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 it's a quality mentality, isn't it? Adam, <laughs> do you, Adam, do you want to do this thing? You want to go, no, I should have said, oh. <laughs> but no, I, I can't. And I am so, so glad, actually, uh, that I, I did. Why and not? That he phoned me. I think... Um, it's it's a it's a mission. It's you know it's like you know any operational tour, any job you do. It feels like you're going on a big you know big adventure with the guys, and this is what the the the, the on is a big adventure with the guys. But it's raising awareness for mental health for all our frontline services. Um, and then that includes police, you know, all the military, um, fire service, our ambulance service. And it's only now now I've started sort of to to mix in 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 a policing environment. Now I realise we often associate. PTSD and mental health with the military, and you know that's that sort of the mental go- health. Yeah. yeah, that's sort of the 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 go to the go to when people say PTSD. You go military combat stress and all the rest of it. But actually, now I start to mixing a police environment. The stories are being told to me that our police force go through that every day, every single yeah. day. You know, our, our ambulance service turn up to... As in traumatic, you mean traumatic, traumatic events every yeah. day, yeah. Consistently, but they, yeah. But they have to be the, the consummate professional throughout that incident. They can't waver one little bit. And that then, you know, stagnates and becomes more of a serious problem later on down the line. Um, you know, uh, this this is a story I was told, the truth beyond it, I don't know, but uh, a story of a, a policeman attending a stabbing in London. A policeman arrived at the, the scene of the stabbing, the, 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 the victim there, was was being treated by the policeman. Now, while he was treating that guy who'd been stabbed, the people who had stabbed him then set upon him, and he's being punched and kicked and abused whilst trying to save the life of this young guy. Now, that police officer now is going to have to go at the end of that incident, probably accompany the victim to hospital because he's a witness, so he's going to have to deal with him. He's then going to have to go back to the station over time, fill in the paperwork then go through the whole rigmarole of, you know, later court cases and everything else and all the stress that comes with that. But then expected to turn up for work the next morning, mm. crack on as if nothing, nothing's gone on, mm. and then probably deal with a similar situation that day. And that stress, you know, it, it never dawned on me before that the stresses and strains that the police go through on a daily basis, and the fire service being the same. And ambulance. I, to be ambulance honest, service. I, think, I honestly think the ambulance service have got it the worst out of three. I think, I'd think i probably agree. I've got, I, and again, with you, I didn't realise until yeah. I I then end up knowing people who went and did those things. Police, yeah, yeah. fire service, ambulance. And, man, like, the ambulance service, they go into, most of the time, they go into someone's worst day. Like, most of the time, when yeah, they get called out, yeah. they go into someone's worst day. They do that multiple times a day. Yeah. But it's, it's little things as well as big things. The obvious ones, the car crashes and, you know, or all the trauma of trying to save a child's life, for example. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Can you imagine that? You know, something is horrendous. And then I've got a, I've got a, I know a few people who are paramedics, and as you do probably. Yeah, yeah. And I remember just one story was, we'll wrap it up in a minute, but yeah. one story, it was as simple as this, he went to a, a person who was trying to kill herself 
on uh, on the underground, throwing it oh, as a bloke, trying to kill himself, throwing himself, trying to throw himself onto the lines, oh, right, on the, okay. onto the lines in the tube, yeah, yeah. the tube the station, electrocuting yeah. himself, or end up in front of the tube. There. My mate went there, got there. It was like it was something in the vicinity of forty minutes an hour before yeah. anyone else came to assist him. But he ended up basically sat on the you know the benches in the underground. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sat on the benches in the underground with this guy uh-huh. trying to constantly talk him down. And every few minutes, this guy was trying to jump up and leap onto the tracks so and restraining him. And just him, just yeah. him talking. This guy wasn't being erratic, trying to hit my mate or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. But he was so intent on killing himself. And my mate was there for forty minutes an hour. And just that in itself, you there's can't no violence going on. Exactly. There's yeah. no violence going on. There's nothing yeah. like that. But can you? The impact of that must of be like. Course, yeah. But like you said. That he would have finished that job, then we would have been on to the next Phone one. Phone call, next one. Yeah, off we go. I've got a mate who's a London paramedic, and he was saying that, um, he was saying that, and he's been doing, well, in fact, he's just changed jobs, right? But he's been doing it for a while, f- f- fair few years. But he was saying when he when he first got into it, the, the burnout rate, people yeah. don't generally last past three to four years on the London Ambulance Service because yeah. of the fucking intensity of it. And going yeah. back to your point about that copper getting um, attacked, yeah. They go out with stab vests on. This is paramedics yeah, with yeah. stab vests on, and they have to worry about getting acid acid attacked, and yeah, stabbed, yeah. and all this stuff when they're trying to help people, course, gang yeah. violence, and all that. Anyway, it's horrendous. Blue light services, mate. Yes. They are like gen up unsung heroes. Oh, people massive, don't realise yeah. anything. Yeah, frontline yeah. services. Yeah, massive. Yeah, and that's what the Omphan's all about: just raising awareness, raising funding, raising support for all these these people who genuinely you know go through so much on a daily basis and very rarely recognized for their for their work and often expected just to turn up next day bright as a button start all over again um yeah it's it's, it's a huge commitment not just for them but for their families as well are all being taken through this because that person now is going to go home and you know into a, a, an environment with his with his family and have to deal with with, with being in family life after suffering you know stresses and strains like this it's often the, the family that take you know a lot of the burden of the stresses and strains of people when they you know express their feelings but yeah it's 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 a and it's going to be three three thousand eight hundred twenty miles i think it is that we're going to be marching um we're going around the whole of the uk to all the military bases are you doing the whole thing yes all <laughs> right okay. but i'm Jesus. not doing all, all no we're really we're relaying it there's there's the seven yeah, yeah. of us oh, yeah, okay, um, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, but we're doing the whole thing um you did the whole. Hang on. So I'm doing. Like, say you're relaying it, but are you doing the whole three thousand odd? No, we, we're right, relaying right. it. The six of us. We, we, we do uh, basically safety eight miles, twenty five kilograms each. Oh, but you'll all go around the whole room. twice a day. Oh. So I'll hand it on to the next guy, onto the next one. There's, there's, there's seven of us doing it, actually doing the tab and a support team. Mm-hmm. So there's seven of us um, actually doing it, and every seventh day you'll get a day off. So there's actually six people marching each day do eight miles and that's like 96 miles a day we'll be doing uh, around the UK all the military bases and then all police stations ambulance stations and NHS buildings uh, and fire stations on the way around um, to raise awareness it's it's starting to gather pace now the only thing we need now is that is 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 to sort of um, get the media coverage but this is it's it's um it's all alien to me it's all it's all very alien to James as well you know we and and now starting James being sort of the training me being a trustee it's a full time job isn't it running a charity and it the 
charity is, is a business. It is a business. You have to run it like a business. You know, it's a business and it has bills to pay. It has, you know, uh, you know, commitments to make. It has promises to make. It has people who have vested interests in it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a heavy workload to take on. Um, and I'd never realised before. Um, some elements of the charity uh, industry... I was going to say aren't so charitable. That's not the right thing to say, but but have to pay their bills as well. So it's it's not a case of just managing a charity. It's a case of having to manage the business. It's tougher than the business. It's tougher than the business. And what you were saying before, you just you're you're constantly asking for things for free. Almost exactly, exactly. And and, and, a business has a product or a service to sell, and they get money from customers. And in doing so, you now have a commitment to that company. Mm -hmm. And the charity doesn't have that. Charity has to get. Ask for money yeah. for nothing. Yes. Can you give me money? You're not getting any of the back for this, by the way. Yeah. But can you give me money so we can support these beneficiaries who aren't you? There's yeah. someone else, yeah. for example. Yeah. It's just the worst thing. It's like the, when I say the worst thing, it's the hardest job yeah. in the world. I it is difficult. never want to do it. Never want to do it. But it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I'm learning as I go along. James is, is learning as we go along. And all the other people helping, uh, you know, all the support teams, we're all learning as we go along. Um, hopefully, when we're going around, uh, you know, we'll raise as much awareness and as much funding as we possibly can for these for these uh, for these charities. It's well worth doing. Uh, you know, it's 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 just it's just getting there. It's it's learning. It's running in custard. It is really running in custard. You know, it's it's difficult. And of course, holding down our own jobs as well. So yeah, you know, we're trying to find what little time we have for ourselves. We're we're filling with 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 uh, charity work. It. So, you, so just quickly before we finish off, so you're visiting all of the military bases. Yeah, if you go onto the yompathon.com website, yeah. uh, there's a route card on there. Okay, but generally, all of the military bases, yeah. NHS places. Yeah, ambulance, fire stations, police all, stations. All of them? Well, if, we, if we're passing it. Oh, right, yeah, got it. Yeah, but the waypoints are all the military bases. If there's police stations or other things around, then yeah, of course we, we we're raising money and, and awareness for them. Uh, yeah, we'd love to get their support as we go around. What are you going to do when you stop off at them? Wait, uh, when you when you say you're visiting them, so if you stop off a cop shop, what uh-huh. are you going to do? Knock on the door, hello, how are you? <laughs> we're supporting you. Get a, get right, get get, get a picture. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. fist bumps and, and hugs all around. Knock on the yeah. door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, got yeah, it. Yeah, hello. They have receptions these days, mate. Yeah, some yes yeah, receptions. <laughs> Few, few business cards around and just you know just let them know what we're about oh my God. Uh, and then hopefully uh, you know we'll get the support as we go around um, we are we are looking at um, people joining us as well so when we're coming past here feel free to join us Covent yeah okay yeah, um, yeah we'll I think I did mention this to him I would be involved yeah yeah, yeah you're I getting, did say this to him yeah, yeah getting so people you can involved. join on for legs so yeah, I can you can join you, you for, can join for a leg yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and you'll, you'll get some um, ribbies you'll get a coin and I think a is it combat, a com- cigar. A combat cigar? Yes, yes. combat cigars are sponsoring the not sponsoring, supporting the Yomathon. Yeah, so everyone who takes part is going to get a cigar. Aren't they? Yeah, yeah, get a cigar, cigar uh, a coin. We, we we're getting coins produced, so we get a little medal out of it as well. Um, but it, yeah, again, it's all it's all you know, giving back to people who are supporting. Uh, if you can raise some money, join us. Feel free. Uh, I'm, I'm sure after. Uh, well, 3,820 miles, my, my feet aren't going to be so good. <laughs> 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 my feet are going to be all blistered and battered, but all for a greater good. Yes. Well, well good luck it. on it, mate. And um, it's yompathon.com. One yompathon.com. Yompathon.com. And uh, on Instagram, it's at the yompathon. Yeah. On Twitter, it's at yompathon. Yeah. Oh, you find it. Yompathon. Yeah, yeah. Pretty yompathon. unique name. Yeah. 
Yeah, you won't get ma many hits if you typed in Yompathon. <laughs> yeah, if you type in Yompathon, you, you'll get very few hits that you'll find us there. Okay. Adam, been a pleasure. Thank you very much. No worries, mate. Cool, good luck with it. Thank you. If you prefer watching the podcast, you can go and watch them on YouTube. So you can see my ugly mug on every episode and the guest's ugly mug or pretty mug or handsome mug, whoever it is the guest is. You can look into the whites of their eyes while they're spinning their dits and telling their stories and imparting their extensive knowledge and experience on you, the listener, and me, the interviewer. So yeah, YouTube's everywhere. You can also become a patron of the podcast, um, get access to all, get access to a whole load of stuff actually access to the podcast, every single podcast before it's released, general released, uh, on general release, you also get access to interviews that are done that are not released publicly. I interviewed Steve separately before this podcast. It's a mini podcast, if you like, a more structured interview. It lasts about 10, 15 minutes. Each one does, and that happens with every guest. You can get a unique insight into Steve's life and experiences about other stuff that we didn't mention on this podcast. Yeah, become a patron. Patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts or go on to the podcast website charliecharlie1.com and hit become a patron easy peasy easy pe I'm saying easy peasy a lot today do you know why because it's easy peasy become a HR patron don't forget this podcast was brought to you by combat cigars combat cigars are a veteran owned veteran operated cigar company the only British military owned cigar company in existence sourcing cigars from a family who've been producing them for over two hundred years incredible cigars people who try our cigars for the first time are repeatedly saying these are the finest cigars they are tasting i am not joking they are saying that yes it surprises me too we are very lucky to have landed on our feet with our cigar partners who produce a cigar for us very happy combat cigars that could okay there's a sale on right now it ends very very soon you need to get amongst it right get on there and uh, there are discount codes floating about if you search them there are in fact let me think. CC2022, I think, is one of them. Yeah, I didn't tell you that. Keep that a secret. Combat Cigars, the Cody UK. This podcast is also brought to you today, today, remember, by Rugby for Heroes, the not-for-profit organisation, a fucking incredible not-for-profit organisation, who organise fundraising events to raise money for military charities. Okay? This organisation is one of my favourite on the planet. One, because they do good stuff. Two, because there's awesome people behind it, and I know those people, and I don't advocate anything that I don't wholeheartedly believe in. Rugby for Heroes is one of those organizations like I like to advocate. advocate. Rugbyforheroes.org, rugbyforheroes.org. Look for their supper clubs, look for their events coming up this year, and get along to one of them, or all of them. I'll see you at all of them. I'm going to all of them. I'm going to make sure I do. The podcast was also brought to you today. The podcast was also brought to you today by the Aardvark Group. The Aardvark Group has established itself as a major player in its field, and they've been doing that since 1982 because they're renowned for their exceptional technology and innovative propositions that support countless defence ministries, the humanitarian and NGO sectors, and commercial operators in theatres of war and post-conflict environments around the world. Many of the listeners, many of the watchers, could be you, are one of those people. You are those people. You work in those dodgy areas. 
You don't mind doing it. You've got skills and experience to bring to bear, and Aardvark can help you capitalize on that. They've also got a shop uh, on the side. I say on the side. They've got a shop. It's not on the side. It's like some dodgy thing. On their website, which tells you all about their products and services, they've also got a shop where you can get bits of kit. Bits of kit. You can get, what am I saying? They've got kit and equipment that is designed for carrying on the man or woman in those theatres of war, hostile environments, post-conflict zones. Things like trauma packs, med kits. Go on to the website aardvark.group. If you see something there you fancy, use a discount code HHOUR at checkout and you will get a discount. That's it. Thank you to the sponsors of the podcast for bringing you the podcast today. Thank you. Become a patron if you so wish and I will see you in the private Discord community there is for patrons. Uh, until next time, out.